Welcome to Antimatter Pod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext, and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. This week, we're discussing the first four episodes of Star Trek Picard Season 2. Finally! I so wish that we had been able to devote proper time to the first few episodes because particularly with the first two, I was like, yeah, I love it. I'm so happy it's back. This is amazing. I went and wrote Vic about the Confederation timeline in the Discovery era. And then the last two episodes have just been a bit disappointing. I feel bad that I couldn't share my enthusiasm and now it's been sort of diluted. That is sad, but it's fair. I think part of it is this is a much larger story than one or two episodes. Yes. It's not all going to make sense until we get to the end. And that is clear from the beginning, so it's fine. But it is harder to do reactions. Like, for example, let's just get to the very end (laughs) of the fourth episode when quote-unquote Laris is revealed (laughs) at the end of that episode. It's a gotcha moment, right? It's like, ooh, what's going to happen? Ooh, let's talk about this for the next week. But I didn't have that energy. I didn't go into that with the, ooh, I'm excited about this energy. I got into the, I don't think I like this energy. (laughs) Yeah. It's not Laris. It's just the entity using Laris's face was just, like, gross. Or... Laris is not who we've thought she was Mm. this whole time, which is, we haven't known her long enough for that to be a good twist. Also, there's no setup for it whatsoever. When Lorca and Ash Tyler are revealed to be not who they appear to be, looking back, there are plenty of clues going back to their first appearances. There's none of that with Laris. It, It feels like gosh it feels like they went gee laris and shaban are really popular characters we need to get them back for season two well maybe it's just laris okay but maybe not laris just anyone played by orla brady don't get me wrong i love orla brady i would love to see her in more things but it just i was thinking about the way this season was promoted with the seven rafi love story and more laris and all of these adventures with the people that we got to know last year last season and it kind of feels obviously you don't want everything to just slavishly be as it appeared in the advertising you want there to be some surprise but it feels like they promised us a trip to Disneyland and then they pulled up to the car park and said look there it is and then drove away again I feel a little cheated Right. But it's also like, I don't know where any of this is going. Mm. I really have no idea where any of this is going because it feels like a big jumbled mess at the moment. Which is very fitting for this series. <laughs> right. Which is, which is, you know, back to the, the norm for Picard. And I'm not even saying it's a bad thing because as we all know, I'm like a huge supporter of giant messes on television. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite kind of TV. But but there are some things that are messier than others. And I really, really, this is also very similar to the first season. I just do not understand why they're making any of the choices that they are making. Yeah, we, 
watched the first episode of the season and my flatmate, who was very, mm, really, about Picard, was like, I wasn't excited to watch this series, but now I'm really into it. And I didn't expect that at all. Episode one and two both felt really coherent, like they understood the story that they were telling and they were very intentional about it. I no longer have that feeling. Since they landed in 2024, it's felt really muddled. And in part, it's because it's kind of racist, but it's also because, you know, we have this ambiguity with Rafi and Seven. We have Picard telling people, mostly women, how to feel and act. It's just... I don't want to say all the worst impulses of season one magnified because so far we don't have any incest and for that I'm grateful. Though I do understand that you miss your Romulanisters and I respect that. I really do. <laughs> I miss them a lot. Can I just point out that all of my Romulans are gone mm. because I'm a little upset about it. And all my Borg. All I've got is the Queen. It was never the most diverse in terms of species on the La Serena, but... All the aliens are gone except the Borg Queen, and it kind of... Well, because the Confederation is founded on mm. humanity first, or whatever it is, that, what is it, a safe universe is a human universe? Yes! Which is like, big yikes. <laughs> so it just feels like they are creating the future that they are trying to avoid. Which could be true, but it's also like, I don't like it. I don't like that. Yeah. And I also just miss my Romulans. I was really excited for all of my Romulans. Seven is now a human and <laughs> all of my Romulans are gone. Most of them are dead. This started out as a series that was very much interested in Romulans and it was about Romulans and they're gone. No more Romulans. So let's go back to the beginning of our notes and... Your note here is, what do we lose when we use time skips? Which is interesting because my question when I watched episode one was, what do we lose when all the civilians go back to Starfleet? And I feel like they're mm. related questions in that season one saw Ruffy and Rios so, so hurt by Starfleet. And now they're back and there's a whole story there that they've just skipped over. Like they skipped over Jaban's death and Laris's mourning and her falling in love with Picard. And like they skipped the entire Ruffy Seven relationship so that now we're just sort of dropping in as they're preparing to get a divorce or whatever. Why did Elnor right. join Starfleet? We have so many questions. We kept notes mm. because we knew that we were eventually going to get to these episodes. We kept notes for each of the episodes. Yes. And I said in the first one that skipping over all of the relationship beats for absolutely every relationship was a choice yeah not a good choice <laughs> it was a choice that was interesting of, of them but how are we supposed to be invested in any of these relationships in Rio Stirati in Rafi and Seven in Picard and Laris even in like Rafi and Elnor who I firmly believe in, mm. like they sold their relationship, but their relationship entirely consisted of her holding him while he was sobbing about Picard being dead. That was their previous relationship. In fact, 
as of season one, he seemed closer to Seven of Nine than Rafi, which... And she's given up on him. Yeah! It could be like a, I can't have a pseudo son Mm. because I did that and it ended badly. I can see the character reasons for her to be cold towards that kind of relationship, but it wasn't on screen. I have to make that up. Right. And... We're Voyager fans, so we're accustomed to doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but we shouldn't have to do this much. I am very open to Picard Laris as a ship. I remember a few hours before the episode came out, I was like, oh my god, what if they've killed off Shaban and they want Laris to be Picard's love interest? I hate it. I will never forgive them. I will be furious. And then it happened on screen and I was like, oh, oh, mutual pining? Oh, I'm, I'm rather into that. But the thing is, there's so little there. All we have really is their interactions in season one. We have all of Brady and Patrick Stewart doing an outstanding job. And we have the many years of canon that tells us that Picard really loves clever women with cheekbones that could cut you. Which brings us to another problem I have so far this season. To borrow a phrase from another podcast, where's Beverly? Yeah, okay, so let's just address this. The elephant in the let's room. Just address it at the top and just get it out there, and then maybe we can let it go. Mm. Probably not, but maybe. <laughs> so, in the first season, mm. it was annoying <laughs> that Beverly was never mentioned, that Beverly was never around. But in the second season, which is literally all about Picard's heart <laughs> and how he has to let people in mm. and have relationships. What is going on? It really feels like they are inserting Laris into the Beverly mold for no reason that I understand. It involved killing one of my Romulans. Yes. Changing a relationship between these people to mirror Beverly, which is the exact (laughs) same thing they did in Generations. Mm -hmm. And I hate Generations. That is a terrible movie. You should never (laughs) try to be like Generations. The thing to me is, I have been a Picard crusher shipper since I was a child, and I have multi-shipped them for almost as long. If they said, oh yeah, this is the all good things ending, and they got together, and it didn't work out, and they're divorced, I'd be okay with that. If they said they never got together, but they are still friends, I'd be okay with that. All you have to do is explain to me why Beverly is not coming up in these discussions at all. Like, he goes to Guinan and talks about how he has opened his heart to others before, and it's like, yeah, you did, and she's the one who shut you down. So is this why you're reluctant to open yourself up to that degree again? I don't think it's just my shipper bias. I think that this is an established connection that they've had going back since 1987 and not addressing it is weird it peaked in all good things and since then they have done nothing the books did but but let's just ignore that and yeah (laughs) let's ignore that and all of the films wasted Beverly Crusher even more than this series, which is, like, a lot, guys. I will say she gets to flirt with Picard a little in Insurrection, and they actually have a really lovely scene in Nemesis where he talks about his youth. I think it might actually be her only scene in Nemesis outside of the wedding. And 
obviously no one is going to watch that genuinely terrible movie for that one scene. But that was the first time in the movies that I really felt like that romantic possibility was still there and still alive. And like I said, I am totally okay with them going, yeah, it's been like 40, 50 years. They haven't got together. They're never going to get together. And that's fine. I don't need that happy ending. I am very happy for Picard and Laris to be a thing. They just have to do the work. Right, right, yes, exactly. We just want closure. And I don't like the feeling that I have that, one, they wanted to increase Laris's role and the only way they could see to do that was to make her single and a love interest. And two, the possibility that they wanted a love interest for Picard and they didn't want Sullivan as old as Gates McFadden. Both of those are terrible thoughts, okay? <laughs> no. No. Congratulations to Orla Brady for being a weirdly young love interest at the age of 60. I'm very happy for her. But it's only a couple of decades since Gates McFadden was slightly too young for Patrick Stewart, so yeah. Oh dear. <laughs> I, just, I just have a lot of... It's fine. I mean... I again my headcanon is that she is living happily with Catherine Janeway <laughs> and neither of them need anything from any of these men <laughs> and so it's fine um, however especially because it was heavily suggested in the guidance scene that she was the one that got away yeah and the fact that they brought back the stargazer yes and they killed off Javon and made Laris his love interest. Like all of these things combined is just mm. like there is a blinking neon Beverly sign that is being ignored. It is kind of funny to I... me that uh, women have a tendency to become widows when they're around Picard. Like I'm not saying he's definitely a serial killer, but I would be concerned. My headcanon is that Beverly is captaining her medical ship and Dr. Salah is her chief medical officer and... Rock Talk is one of her engineers and they're Aww. off somewhere in the galaxy having their own Starfleet medical drama and it's really interesting and fun and much more coherent than Picard's show. Call me CBS. Do you want to continue on the relationship drama bandwagon and discuss your issues with Rafi and Seven? I really don't like saying this because I feel bad about it, but... I don't ship it and the show is not giving me reasons to ship it beyond the extra textual fact that we are long overdue a relationship between two women in this franchise and it's important that a character from the Berman era, especially a character as significant as Seven, is bisexual. And I like these characters and I want them to be happy, but everything in their interactions, even their body language, to me says... They're just kind of bored and irritated by each other. It feels like they're asking us to be invested in a relationship that started with an out-of-the-blue hand touch with no build-up and barely any interaction. And then, instead of giving us the foundation that we expected we would get in Season 2, they've skipped straight to the relationship is on the rocks phase. And I don't really care. If I was their friend, I'd be going, yeah, this is really sad, but clearly you're better apart and... You should break up and hope that you can rebuild your friendship. Bye. I was okay with it through the third episode. Mm. I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. Mm. They were going to give me the relationship buildup that we were looking for. You said in the chat earlier that you need more 
to ship people yeah. that you need a reason and I do not. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's one of the things I like ship about people you. who are in completely separate universes <laughs> and will literally never meet. Yeah. <laughs> and I can come up with how those people got together and had a great life. <laughs> so I was okay with it. The fourth episode really strained me because there was a lot of bickering, which could be cute, right? Could be like, ooh, it's a rom-com, except it was not a rom-com. It was like a buddy cop movie. Mm. And it was poorly executed because Seven kept interrupting Rafi and telling Rafi what to do and nitpicking Rafi, like not just suggesting other options, but like actually saying, why are you doing this mm. this way? And I was just not at all into that. I didn't like that at all. Like that is Seven's personality from way back in Voyager. Seven is the person who does not know social norms and is going to just bust in and tell you her opinion. Mm. However, maybe because it didn't have that Seven like Borg, her posture was different. Like her posture is human and she looks human and like sort of enjoying being human, which is great for Seven, good job. But because of that, it came off as really like mean, cruel, (laughs) you know, there was just this level of this isn't playful and this isn't awkward. This is just mean. Yeah. Why are we doing this? And and earlier in episode three, when Rafi has beamed into the sanctuary district and Seven joins her, Rafi seems visibly irritated to have Seven's company. So I'm like, why are you together? Why is this a relationship you want us to be invested in? And I thought it was just me not seeing a connection in their body language. But then I saw a gift set where someone literally went through and pointed out like, Jerry Ryan will hand Ruffy something and position her hands so that their fingers don't touch. There is no physical comfort between them. And I noticed it in the third episode when they're posing for the cellular photograph, they're standing so that their arms are around each other, but their hips are not touching. It looked like a convention photo. There was no intimacy there. And I'm like, is this intentional? Or is this because these are two heterosexual women playing bisexuals? Is it intentional homophobia from the director in terms of not wanting to offend those fans? Because on the other hand, we have Hugh and Paul, who are very chaste and all ages appropriate, really. They hardly ever even kiss, but we see them in bed. They're always touching. They're always comforting each other. And I almost wonder if it's because they're both played by queer men and also Discovery has only ever had two straight showrunners in its whole existence. I don't know. I didn't like the tone policing type stuff that was Oh, going God. On. There's so much racism. Like Picard and Seven as the white privilege team, I don't like it. But the other thing is, I was thinking this morning, the last time I watched Voyager all the way through, which was a few years ago, I came out of it thinking Seven of Nine is definitely asexual and aromantic, and it was a big mistake to try and put her in all of these heterosexual relationships. And when season one of Picard ended, I was like, oh, okay, I was wrong. She might be on the ace spectrum, but she's bisexual. And that's great. I'm really happy about that. Now I'm back to thinking she is ace and should not be in a relationship and yet she keeps trying because that is what Janeway and Chakotay and everyone told her she needs to do. So let's talk about Seven's plotline just briefly. Because I love Seven of Nine. She's my favourite Star Trek character of all time. Obviously. (laughs) 
And I really like the idea of this plot line, which is basically Seven has spent her entire adult life being shunned yeah. by everyone, basically. By people who are supposed to, you know, by rights, she's gorgeous, right? And she's outgoing. She can be awkward, but she's not this horrible person that you don't want to spend time with. She can be funny. She can be kind. And yet just the fact that she is Borg means people stay away from Rush. her. And so not being Borg, even not being Borg in a horrible alternate universe is... You know, the scene in the park is the best example where she's literally surrounded by flowers <laughs> and a sweet child looks up at her like she's, you know, the most amazing thing that that child has ever seen in her life. And she says, are you a superhero? That level of adoration, yes. like, of course, she's going to respond to that and want more of it of course she's going to want to see herself as beautiful instead of as a monster like it's a really great storyline but the fact that jerry ryan is jerry ryan makes it hard because she was never ugly (laughs) she was never a monster there was never anything horrible about her even when she was full-on prosthetics Borg she was still stunningly attractive and the prejudice and revulsion towards XBs is a relatively new introduction to the franchise whereas for her four years on Voyager and in our minds for decades afterwards it was like yeah people might be wary of her at first because she was Borg but she's a part of their crew she's a part of their family and most people accept her and love her. So this idea that she is completely shunned and othered when she gets back to the Alpha Quadrant, it makes sense, but it's strange to me that she would internalise it so deeply when she was accepted so unconditionally on Voyager and she had that foundation. It feels a little pasted on. Right. So let's just get down to the end of, again in my notes here, that identity Mm. is a huge theme in this series. It was a theme throughout season one, and it's clearly a theme throughout season two, that what are you? How do you create yourself? And I'm not angry at this plot line. I'm interested in this plot line. I just think that It's hard to tell this story Mm. with Jerry Ryan. She is a beautiful white woman. Yes. She does not have to deal with the prejudices that exist for other people, (laughs) for what a Borg might be in our reality. Seven Story is interesting to me, but so much of it is bound up in privilege that we as the audience feel like she should be rejecting, whether that's her white privilege or the privilege of just being very beautiful or both combined. And it's hard to put myself in her shoes when I also see her telling Rafi to be nicer to the police because Seven of Nine is so nice and so diplomatic all the time. Never, okay? (laughs) That is not her thing. Mm. That's the other thing is like, Okay, I 
obviously Rafi is a disaster and we know that, but she's my favorite disaster. <laughs> like I love Rafi. Okay. And so here's the thing. She's stuck in 2024. So far, she doesn't have a plot line as much as anyone else. Like everyone else seems to have a plot line and Rafi does not. Her plot line is I'm sad about Elnor, which so am I. So I relate, but that's not really a, it's not a plot line. Rafi that's- is sad about Elnor and rescuing Rios, but she doesn't have anything of her own. We don't even know for sure that she went into Starfleet for herself or to protect Elnor. Right, exactly. We don't know what Rafi is doing or why she's making any of her choices. Mm. And I want to know more. It's really interesting to me how Rafi keeps ending up involved with law enforcement. First, you know, she is a cop in the Confederation and now she's dealing with the LAPD in 2024. It doesn't feel intentional and it should because I think if you're going to put a black woman so close to the police over and over again, you need to be thinking about what you're doing. And the thing is, there are no black people in this writer's room. I checked, the only person of colour is an Asian man, so we have a story about ice and institutional racism and no Latin writers and no black writers. Your face right now. I mean, that's just, that it just says it all, yeah, I yeah. feel, that, okay, because it's related, let's talk about Guinan. I was not prepared for them to have recast <laughs> Guinan, and I was thrown because her voice is nothing like Whoopi Goldberg's, but her presence and her face were just remarkable, and then from some angles, her hair looked like a hat, so I was like, it's so sad that Guinan doesn't have a hat. Wait! <laughs> Mm. Let's talk about Guinan. She gets this whole bit mm. about she's leaving. She's leaving Earth because she's given up on us, which is not fair. <laughs> Same, Guinan. <laughs> I wish I could get in a little station wagon and drive off to another planet. Guinan, take us with you. And she has some, you know, really biting lines. Again, there's zero subtlety in this no, show. No, no subtlety anywhere. None to be found. (laughs) So there are very blatant black women calling out America specifically for being horrible. And I agree with everything she said. But those scenes included our protagonist, Mm. who is a revered character, actor, person, everything having the argument with her like providing the other side and and his side is it's going to get better because i come from there and i've seen Mm. it and i Mm. know it's Mm. going to get better just be patient it's just a little nuclear holocaust god you people are so sensitive that was a joke i would never say that in earnestness so that was not a great look. And again, I think that the writers think they're doing something amazing mm. by having Guinan say this stuff, which is like, okay, I will give you your three cookies for that. However, the fact that it is paired with Picard literally telling her to be patient, which is what every white man ever mm. <laughs> has said to everyone else, 
in all of history. It's Martin Luther King's The Problem of the White Moderate. Just be patient, your time will come. Give it more time. Be quiet and wait for us to give it to you. To borrow a phrase from an admiral that I like very much, the sheer fucking hubris. Yeah, so Picard's privilege being called out is a theme at this point. Through the whole Everyone series. Everyone has called yeah. him out on his privilege, and I'm into it. But again, just the fact that he has the gravitas of being Jean-Luc mm. Picard and being Patrick Stewart, just the fact that he's that guy, we are conditioned to think he's right. Yes, I am not concerned that anyone is going to watch this and come out of it thinking that ICE are the good guys and that they should really be supporting ICE, but I do worry that they are going to come out of it thinking, yeah, Captain Picard is right. People of colour just need to be more patient. In conclusion, given a choice between listening to Jorts the Cat and Captain Picard, always listen to Jorts. Correct. I just want to point out, and I think it was Aristophanes, sometime guest and friend of the podcast, who, who coined this phrasing, he Picard-splained Elorian physiology to her. I mean, come the fuck on, mate. Right. And as she said, we needed to get that exposition out. Yes. And so this was the way to do it. But it's like, that actually wasn't the way to do it. You, you could have done something else. And this brings me back mm. to what we lose when we use time skips <laughs> and my issue with all of Picard, mm. which I love. I love this show. I don't know why. <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't think it's good, <laughs> but I love it. And I'm very invested. I'm like ridiculously invested in characters that no one else cares about and all of the characters that, that we're supposed to care about, mm. except for Picard <laughs> and Q. Yeah, there was this whole thing at the end of episode four with Q and the girl at the Europa Project, and I'm like, okay, cool, they'll explain that to us when we get there. I wonder what Ralphie's doing. Right, it was unnecessary. Going back to episode two, I loved the Confederation. I didn't at first. I was watching Q tour Picard through his collection of monstrosities and skulls and all of that, and I was like... Yeah, we've seen that. It was called Season 1 of Discovery, and it was great. We don't need to do this again. But as the episode went on, I realised that the Confederation is a totally different kind of totalitarian and xenophobic dystopia to the Terran Empire. And the way I think of it is, the Terran Empire is Baroque, it's gaudy, it's gold chest plates and weird sex parties, and... The Confederation is brutalist and dull and bureaucratic to the point where they have to formalise a day for people to let loose Eradication Day because otherwise clearly the masses have no outlet. The mirror universe is if Europe Mm. took over the galaxy. Yes. And the Confederation is if America (laughs) took over the galaxy. (laughs) It's even called Confederation. Like... Yeah, I mean, it's clearly, that was on purpose. Again, no subtlety. (laughs) No subtlety. And I absolutely believe that if America took over the galaxy, it would be brutalist. It would be dull. Mm. It would be rules-driven, authoritarian. You don't get to have sex parties (laughs) in America. That is unacceptable and when i say america i mean like 
the people who are trying to destroy America right now. The Confederation definitely seems like a place where your id has to be very restrained unless you're beating or killing an alien. Whereas, I think in the Terran Empire, your id is in the driver's seat. Your id is in the captain's chair. The Terran Empire is if humanity has always been bad, whereas the Confederation is humanity now never improving. Yes. We made the choice yeah. to let the conservative voices, and when I say conservative, like when I use Republican or conservative or like any of these, I'm using them as the type of person who's going to get to the Confederation. Yeah. I don't want anyone to tone police me. <laughs> I am, I'm just saying. Mm. Speaking of people who, like you, would exist today and be working for change, let's talk about Dr. Teresa, because I... I was not a big Rios fan last season. I was kind of like, and he's there. And then I think I must follow a lot of Santiago Cabrera fans on Tumblr. Uh, he's just been a constant presence on my dash. And so I guess I've become fond of him by proximity. And also I'd like to apologize because I don't speak any Spanish and I don't hear much Spanish. So I don't get an opportunity to learn how it sounds and mimic it. So my pronunciations are just going to be Anglo and I'm sorry. Anyway. We, Rios comes in as this super competent captain of a starship and suddenly he's much more interesting to me than the guy who reads existentialist philosophy in the dark because he's sad. I'm glad that this competent captain has that background because that makes him more interesting than just being a straight up hero guy. But anyway, so we get to Rios meeting Teresa and I'm like, oh, this is the foundation for a relationship that you're not giving to Laris and, and Picard or Seven and Rafi. This is the meet-cute and the flirtation. Oh, he's met her son. Either he's going to adopt them and bring them into the 24th century, or they're his ancestors and he has to sadly leave them behind to live through the nuclear holocaust. Or something horrible is going to happen like Edith Keeler. Oh, far out. I didn't even think of that. Just putting it out. Thanks, I hate it. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. there is a third option. Yes. I, I don't like to acknowledge that character death can be a possibility, which is why I have not really, I'm not sad for Elnor because I don't believe he's dead. But I really like Teresa. I think the Where's Beverly podcast had very good points about how she is not actually a good doctor, and that's totally fair. But also, <laughs> TV doctors and real doctors exist in different categories for me. And you know, eight episodes of Good Sam later, it's just nice to have one who is not working so for I a for-profit. I can tell profit. a story. Yes. I can tell a story that will make you realise that Teresa is actually a great representation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's my story. Many years ago now, when I didn't have a job, mm -hmm. and I had medical expenses, and I specifically had a toothache, and I went to a dentist that was for people who didn't have insurance, mm -hmm. like me, yes. so that it would be inexpensive and they would work with me to pay it off, mm -hmm. but they would, you know, take care of me and not just send me away as like a regular dentist would, you know? <laughs> so I get there and it's one room with one chair, <laughs> you know, and it, there is none of this nice, like silver... <laughs> And everything is very antiseptic. Mm. No, that was not there. I'm sure it was antiseptic. I'm not saying that, but it was very 
old school. And he did a little exam and he said, this tooth needs to come out. And I was like, okay. And so he said, so you agree? And I said, yes. Thinking he was going to make an appointment <laughs> to remove the tooth with anesthesia or something. Novocaine, at least. No. He took out his pliers. He <laughs> opened my mouth and he yanked out the tooth. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that was it. And he gave me some Advil and he sent me on my way. I completely believe this because in Australia, dentistry is not covered by our public health care system unless you're very, very poor. So my best friend had a, a very bad wisdom tooth, much the same as you did. So she had to go to the public dentist and the dentist sat her down in a chair, put her foot up on my friend's chest to brace herself and yanked the tooth out with pliers and sent her on her way. As far as healthcare for the marginalized goes, Teresa is an absolute saint. <laughs> I don't know what her dentistry is like, but I'm sure it's wonderful. <laughs> the whole thing where she got him talking and then did mm, his hand, mm. I was like, oh yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. Like, she doesn't have time. Yes. She doesn't have supplies. This is all she can do, okay? I completely understand why the actual healthcare worker on Where's Beverly had a problem with that scene. Like, I cannot watch anything set in a legal space. But as the other host said, she's had worse experiences. And I thought she had great chemistry with Rios. And chemistry does not just come from the actors. Like, Jerry Ryan and Michelle Hurd have amazing chemistry, but the writing always needs to back that up. And... It is there for Rios and Teresa in a way that it is not for Seven and Rafi. Yeah, it's disturbing in a way that Jerry Ryan and Michelle Hurd have more chemistry on Twitter mm. than they do in the show. Well, we got the whole pairing because the, the writers was looking at this photo that Jonathan Del Arco took of them at, at an event and went, oh, they look really great together. They look like a couple. I think maybe that is not actually a good foundation for an on-screen pairing if you're not willing to put in the work as a writer to make it happen. Just me. But I, I like Rios and Teresa in their own right as well, not just as a contrast to, like, as a contrast to Ruffy and Seven, I kind of hate that the het couple is getting so much more writing for them than the bisexuals, but... At the same time, I compare it to Rios and Agnes last season, and it's again a million times It's just a million times better. And I, I find it kind of weird that the pairings that get the most foundation, aside from Rios and Teresa, have been Narek and Soji and Narek and his sister. That's just because they didn't understand what they had when they had Narek, okay? I don't think they understood what they had when they had Soji. You know, the main well, character I mean, last season, the female lead. Who's had three lines this season? The woman around whom that, the show Soji? pivoted. Yeah, that's Soji. As you say, we've lost all of our non-human characters and we've lost all and all of our young characters yes yes don't get me wrong i do love a show about middle-aged people in space and their granddad i i, I don't think agnes is really middle-aged but she's in her late 30s like she's our age-ish 
certainly Alison yes. Pill is my age. She's not a, a young character. Yeah. She's not yeah. the, the kid character. Yeah. Elnor and Soji and Narek and Nerissa were the next generation. And I liked that we had three generations in a story. I, I don't think that they were all necessarily handled well, but something has been lost with Soji and Elnor and the Romulanisters, I guess. And I miss it. I'm just saying, Narek in 2024 would be great. Okay, oh I'm sorry. It would, it's just truth. No. Narek and Elnor wandering around. Disguised as humans. 2024 with the, the Spock, yes, you know. Yes, yes around the, the guy who can't lie and the guy who can't tell the truth and and soji with them just being yeah why being why like, are you like this <laughs> soji just trying to get things done yeah, yeah it's just upsetting that or the idea that beverly could be in the laris position and i'm not saying i don't love or brady or laris but if everything that happened with laris this season happened with beverly Nothing would change. Mm. And it would include Beverly. Even if the Watcher is like taking the form of someone you trust and it's Gates McFadden, that would make as much sense. I mean, I guess we're lucky it's not Brent Spiner. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. I mean, true. True. But. He hasn't shown up yet. He's coming. He's coming. In yet another Sung and (laughs) Sister. I saw a theory that Issa Briones will turn up as a Sung ancestor, and I am very much in favour of that. As with Ola Brady, I'd much rather see Laris and I'd much rather see Soji, but at the same time, I would be excited to have Sungs who are not Brent Spiner. Also, I think that if you have a surname like Sung, it's kind of weird that none of you are Asian, so... They're bad at this. I understand that the people who are making Star Trek now are not the people who created the songs and the sings and, and screwed it up in the beginning. No. However, they are perpetuating. The original plan for Nuni and Sung was to cast a Japanese man because, you know, the Japanese electronics data. So I kind of feel like we did dodge a bullet way back when. <laughs> however, however. What if we just cast people who aren't Brent Spiner? Because like we said last season, he's not very good at the acting thing. Like, he only has two modes. Not very good. He's a wonderful data and he's a wonderful asshole and that is the extent of his range. Do you want to talk about Picard's mum? Yes. I'm terrified. (laughs) Me too. Okay, so I love her. I will love any mention of a mother, (laughs) of a hero... In a positive light. Absolutely. Like, I'm primed to be ready to love that person because there just aren't enough of them. We have a whole episode about that. And she is so fun. She is adorable. I loved when she called him out for being ridiculous. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, go Mama Picard. But her as yet unrevealed trauma Mm. concerns me. I am terrified that it's going to have some kind of sci-fi twist Mm. or even like a mystery box twist that it's going to be not what it appears to be. I don't necessarily want it to be what it appears to be, but I really don't want it to be not what it 
<laughs> no, this makes sense. My fear is that we're going to get a domestic violence plot line that ends in her being fridged. That's better than my fear. Like, as, as horrible as that is, my fear is that we're going to get a domestic violence plot line where it's revealed that she's, like, bipolar. Oh. <laughs> and I just, I can't, I can't. No, no. <laughs> I'm very wary of the idea of a domestic violence plotline in Star Trek because I feel like I know that I've said many times that I don't believe in the utopia, but apparently I did believe in the utopia where domestic violence no longer existed because the preconditions for it, the relationships you can't escape, the misogyny, the toxic masculinity, that all of those preconditions weren't there. Poverty, yes. And the need for power over another person, which is very much a non-gendered driving force behind domestic violence. They should all be gone. Now that I say this out loud, it makes perfect sense that the utopia breaks down sometimes. And just as Tasha Yar was raised on a rape-tastic hell planet, maybe Jean-Luc Picard had family violence in his childhood. But to me, this is a place to tread very lightly. It's very unclear to me if they're suggesting that these are repressed memories or suppressed memories, mm. where does he actually remember them and he just can't deal with it, or does he not remember? I always took it as he remembers it, but he doesn't like to dwell on it because it's painful and, hello, have you met Jean-Luc Picard? I think the other thing is that it feels like a retcon from what we know about his family, but at the same time it doesn't. And Picard is one of those guys whose father, the brief time we see him, is someone who two writers of the generation that wrote Tapestry were probably like, oh yeah, he's a bit of a hard ass. And to the modern audience is outright abusive. I think Owen Paris is... Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a revelation. Mm. I mean, it's very clear that they're telling the final story of this character. And so we need to reveal something from the very beginning. Like that's a truth. Yes. And they're doing it. And that's fine. And I'm... Like, look, just the fact that Yvette Picard is a person. Yes. <laughs> is already exciting. She has desires. She has... I love the roses on the... Yeah, the, yeah. The painted roses on the conservatory walls are... That's beautiful to me. And it's precious it's like this artistic you know it's she's a delicate flower and she likes epf but she's also a hard ass i i I can believe that she's being abused but she also is not a victim all the time like she's that yeah yeah and she could have been portrayed as a manic pixie dream mum And I feel like they've actually walked a really fine line and done a really good job in just a few very short scenes and perceived through the (laughs) rose-coloured eyes of a son, given her the baseline from which a fully-fledged character can grow. Not to psychopathologise the Picard family, but the idea of 
Jean-Luc as a mama's boy and Robert as his father's son mm. is like that makes sense perfectly makes a lot of sense explains a lot of stuff the, the first thing we know about his family is the uh, hallucination in I think it's where no man has gone before so like late first mm-hmm. season or early second season TNG where he hallucinates his mother greeting him warmly and offering him tea tea yeah. yes and, and then later when he hallucinates his father it's this cold, abusive man who is cruel to him. Right. I don't think we needed an explanation for why Picard is English, but, you know, it's just me. People want it. Like, people, it's weird. I've seen on Twitter people saying, oh, thank goodness, I've been wondering for 30 years. And it's like, okay, I haven't, but sure. Yeah, good for you, mate. I feel like those people have to be in the minority. There can't have been that many people that were wondering this it's a little bit of like my brother is very opinionated mm. so not like you. i don't go as far as him <laughs> <laughs> not like me i know i'm i am also very opinionated we were raised this way yes. by our mom yes. <laughs> so that's just the way it is but you know he, like talks about this all the time that hollywood as an entity is sort of obsessed with explaining everything first creating a mystery and then explaining it and if we could stop that and just tell stories there there was a time when the story could speak for itself and it's so hard to find that balance like earlier in this episode we were complaining that not enough has been made clear i i just think they're prioritizing Mm -hmm. wrong and there were a lot a lot of Easter eggs and fan servicey references in episode four. There was the bit about Chris Brinner refusing to unionize, which I think is great, and I cannot wait for the greatest Amazing. gen to Amazing. address that. And, and then there's, oh gosh, you mentioned that Teresa might have the Edith Keeler fate. The place where Guinan is donating her stuff from her bar is the same mission that Edith Keeler ran in City on the Edge yes. of Forever, so that's concerning. Guinan can't have that ending, so... Yeah, then we have the punk on the bus who is the same guy with an updated version of the song from The One with the Whales, and that's great, and that's so funny. But then you have Guinan not recognising Picard from Time's Arrow because time changed and General Picard of the Confederation didn't go back to have that encounter with her in the 1890s, and that's fine. I think they needed to explain that because the absence of that detail was very distracting. But then presumably Spock doesn't exist in the Confederation timeline and he did not go back to find some whales. So, like, how did the punk remember? I can just hand wave it as, this man has been through a lot of growth in the last 40 years and he's really developed as a person and become more considerate of others, though not to the point of investing in headphones. So when Seven asks him to turn it off, he does so and apologises without being neck-pinched, but then he's, like, rubbing his neck and yeah it was definitely i just think they could have cut that scene we didn't need it it didn't add anything to the story it didn't add anything to the characters or it could have just been as simple as rafi and seven looking uncomfortable on the bus with our old friend the punk listening to his music and that's it there's nothing else and then we could have used that time to establish that picard thinks he met guinan in the past and guinan has no memory of it oh look she's spewing because all of a sudden temporal shifts cause nausea in Alorians, even though there was none of that in yesterday's Enterprise. I assume that she had better drugs. Beverly would never let Guinan be nauseous. 
This is why we need Beverly. (laughs) That's why. In my head, there's a version of this season where Beverly is with them. Not as Picard's partner or girlfriend, but just she happened to be on the Stargazers, so she has wound up on La Serena. And so she is accompanying Picard on his search for the Watcher. I think you're right that Laris is not Laris and is just, I'm using Laris's face mm. to make you comfortable, which is like, again, no, <laughs> but I believe that, which and it also feels cheap and I'm just over it. But anyway, I let it go. But if Laris were an actual guardian angel and was like the anti-Q <laughs> or the Q's other side or whatever mm. and has been following John Luke all this time and let's talk about look up in a minute because that's clearly important yeah. but briefly I considered you know okay so Laris is an anti-Q so it, we couldn't have Beverly in that role because Beverly being an anti-Q would change everything in the next generation. And then I thought about it for a while. And I was like, you know what? It wouldn't. (laughs) It would just make everything better. (laughs) It would explain, not that we need an explanation, but it would explain why Wesley's so great because Wesley's half Q. (laughs) (laughs) Or something a step above Q. Half anti-Q. Yeah. (laughs) What's anti-Q? It would be like... You? C. (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere in that. At the beginning of the Mm, mm. (laughs) Anyway. So, yeah. The punk was... I rolled my eyes, I'll be honest. And I love Star Trek IV. But I would rather have Elnor wearing his head covering, ripping up his uniform and putting on it to cover up his ears as the tribute to Star Trek IV than... Or Narek in a dressing gown. But I do want to mention... Just because we were mentioning shout-outs, I want to mention that Teresa has Rain Robinson's hair. Flourish, whom I have known in Harry Potter fandom since way back when, they said, maybe this is only my dream, but I want Teresa to be the new Rain Robinson. And I had to share that with you because I know how much you love Rain and they do have the same hairstyle. They have the same hair. Mm. Which I fear is a sign that she is going to be left behind. But I'm trying not to use hairstyles as the basis of prophecy. Maybe Rios will stay behind with her. Oh no, I don't want that. I like him now. I want him to go back and keep captaining the Stargazer and occasionally scandalising his straight-laced crew by reminding them at that time he was basically a low-key pirate. I'm re-watching ER as I do. Yes. Constantly. <laughs> but I'm rewatching ER and I just got to the introduction of the nurse, Sam, mm-hmm. who is a single mom of a precocious, bratty little boy, mm-hmm. and who has a relationship with Luca, who is the foreign, sad man who, <laughs> who, reads, who reads existentialism in the dark. <laughs> yes, who reads existentialism. So I was thinking about them mm. <laughs> when I was watching these scenes with Teresa and Rios and Teresa and Rios have amazing chemistry. They are getting all of the, you know, all of the buildup, all the relationship buildup that we wanted from literally any other relationship <laughs> in this series from the beginning. Except Narek and Narissa. And they're getting it. And so like, I guess that's good on one level. It's a good thing for them at least, but that relationship, Luca and Sam, it doesn't work out. Oh. And so I was sort of like, it's going to be okay. (laughs) They're going to both get into other better relationships that work better for them. However, 
that is not Gerardi. I was about to say the same thing because clearly Agnes and the Borg Queen also have all the chemistry that none of the other pairings are getting. Don't completely understand why. I don't know if it's intentional, but I ship it a lot. I don't think that a complete lack of legs or indeed lower body should stop the Borg Queen from having a full and enthusiastic personal life. And mm -hmm. they are really interesting. I have this problem with a lot of the Borg Queen's dialogue. It is so contemporary. My flatmate said, why is the Borg Queen sassy? But that aside, and it's kind of a problem that I have with a lot of characters in Picard, but I think Annie Wershing is doing a great job and she and Alison Pill, I could watch them interact for hours. I love their battle of wills. It is just really engaging. And I agree that the Borg Queen is sassy mm. but my take on it is that they have both been changed yes by their merging and so the borg queen has a little of, of agnes's sass and agnes has a little of the borg queen's confidence i think that makes sense because i don't think the borg queen was as personable prior to their entwinement which is like choose a less sexy word borg queen if you don't want me to ship it <laughs> Come on, woman. Get it together. I mean, there's no indication they don't want me to ship it, so I'm just <laughs> going to go on shipping it and just say that, like, look, okay, first of all, there have been breadcrumbs that Agnes is attracted to women. Like, yes. she is constantly complimenting women on their... And she and Soji, I thought, were going to be a thing until Soji disappeared into the ether. Oh, yeah. And when she was first beamed on board to the La Serena and saw Rafi and just had this look of like, oh, mm. <laughs> she has shown more interest in all of the women than she did in Rios in their like, he's shirtless scene. <laughs> so, yeah, she should just let that happen. Yeah. Agnes is like Tilly to me in that she's a character I cannot interpret as anything other than pansexual. Yeah. And the other thing that she has shown attraction to is robots. Yes. <laughs> she loves robots. Oh, hence the thing with Soji. And I feel like maybe the Borg Queen is not yeah. a healthier choice, but at the same time, like, she murdered the boyfriend who built Soji, so maybe this is better for her. I feel like I said a couple weeks ago, when we weren't even talking about the card, <laughs> we were talking about Discovery, that I am here for the redemption of the Borg Queen. So go for it. Enemies to lovers, may happen. I would love a redemption arc for the Borg Queen just because it is so unlikely on the surface. And yet this is a queen who has been separated from the collective and held prisoner right. for an uncertain amount of time and is clearly suffering from that. And like Georgiou, her morality is oh. kind of dubious. But also, like Georgiou, maybe she's never had an opportunity to be anything else. Exactly. And the other thing, the only other thing I have to say about Agnes is that I am desperate for her to change clothing. Oh, I know. She's been wearing that I for so long and it's so ugly. I hate that hideous house coat that <sighs> she is wearing. It's so unflattering. It is so ugly. She has no figure whatsoever it's just nothing there's nothing 
and it's just boring. I so liked the blue suit that she wore in the first episode because it was incredibly flattering and it was the same sort of blue that she was wearing all of last season. So it felt really, you know, that's her colour. And if nothing else, I think she probably needs a shower by now. Who knows how long she was sleeping in that lab. Everybody else got to raid the closets for their Mm. authoritarian Mm. punk clothes. She should too. I do want to point out that I do think that Agnes is going to change clothes and she is going to be the Kim Kardashian Met Gala Borg Queen that greets the Stargazer. And this sort of comes back to what we were saying about can the Borg Queen be redeemed because the subtitles for the Borg in that scene with the Stargazer actually name them as Legion, not the Borg. And this is a biblical reference, you know, I am I am Legion, we are one, we are Legion, something like that. My Bible is not really that good. It's also a reference to Mass Effect where a hive mind produces an individual as a communicator, locutor style, and it calls itself Legion and it is my son and I love it. And it has this line, does this unit have a soul? And it's basically the whole Cylon thing and the question is can these cyborgs who have killed so many people and almost destroyed their own creators be redeemed and do they deserve a second chance and obviously the only acceptable answer to me is yes i i've said again another thing i said at the beginning of the first episode was oops (laughs) i'm on the side of the borg no exactly the way i'm on the side of the cylons like I came out of it, I was like, the, the Borg are, are trying to join the Federation. Let them. Even if they are not literally the entire collective, but this subset that call themselves Legion, just as we took in Hugh and just as we had the little collective created by Law and now the XBs on Capelius, we should be welcoming the Borg when they want to change. I remember you saying a few years ago, possibly while we were talking about season one of Picard, that as a teenager with a lot of feelings, you wanted to be a Borg. Yep. And so Agnes and her feeling drawn to the collective and assimilation and the Queen makes me think of that. When Alison Pill was cast Mm. in Star Trek Picard, I said, ooh, I'm in Star Trek Picard, because I've always said if anyone was going to play me, it would be Alison Pill. It's true. You look alike. And the fact that Agnes has this, I... I'm afraid of the Borg and I want to retain my individuality, but I also am very attracted to the idea of being a Borg Mm. and having that confidence all the time and belonging when I don't belong anywhere. And I've never felt that is like super personal to me. Yeah, That is absolutely my existence and my understanding of the Borg and of seven storyline. So Yes. I'm super into Agnes and the Borg. I liked their stuff more than the shenanigans in 2024. I think it has the advantage of not tying into any contemporary prejudices, Mm. aside from the general prejudice against the Borg. And I have noticed that Star Trek fans are really bad at changing their understandings of the traditionally hostile aliens like if you try to do a time jump now and say oh hey we're currently allied with the Klingons I think people would lose their shit because you think about how they talked about Rillick as a part Cardassian and Mm -hmm. how they talk about the Borg I 
think that the idea of redeeming even a section of the collective is going to be really offensive to some viewers and therefore I'm really in favour of it. Uh, the other thing it makes me think of is Eve and Villanelle in Killing Eve and this whole I know mm. that being with you will ultimately destroy me but I want it anyway thing. That to me is Agnes and, and the Queen. I was thinking of Evangelion again mm. and I'm, I'm convinced that someone in the Star Trek writing room is into Evangelion because the scenes with Agnes and the Queen had a very, not to get into like, you mean it's crazy, but <laughs> the idea of it is that these kids have to connect to the giant robot on the level of their soul. Like they have to be assimilated in order to work together correctly. So when they're out of sync, nothing happens yep. but when they are connected then they're basically one being and the main character connects to the giant robot that has the soul of his dead mother oh that's healthy no <laughs> <laughs> But now I'm thinking of the really stupid theory after episode one that Picard's mother was the Kim Kardashian Met Gala Borg queen. Because she says look up, which is what, like, their entire theory was because she says look up. And that is what Picard's mother says. Obviously, it's important. I am not currently convinced that anything that is happening is actually happening. (laughs) (laughs) It could still end up being a tapestry kind of Mm. thing going on here because... Q is weird. Q is just being weird all the time. Picard's relationship with reality is sort of strained. In the nicest <laughs> like he's possible He's having way. these flashbacks. He's seeing Q when Q may or may not be there. He's lost in memories yes. a lot. Both like visually, actually, but also just the idea of going to see Guinan, mm. having these different things, being on the Stargazer. He, he's just shattered in certain ways. He's not mentally compromised the way he was in season one, but he's also not necessarily present emotionally or cognitively all mm. the time. Yeah. Something that just occurred to me, and I can't believe that I want to give credence to this stupid theory, but... The Borg would have all of Picard's memories of his mother because they assimilated him years and years and years and years ago. So the Borg Queen would know that his mother told him to look up. That wouldn't make her his mother, but using his mother's words against him. Yes, yes. Interesting, interesting. But also the Borg Queen has this connection with Agnes and they can share information back and forth. So Agnes can go back and access that information. So, I'm sorry. You confuddled me again. I'm sorry. I got extremely (laughs) wibbly wobbly. I was was just like, whoa. (laughs) It was like a little cat and you like put a little laser over there and I have no idea what I was focused on. I was putting up my wall of conspiracies and you followed that string too far. Too far. Mm. I folded too far. Well, I'll talk about Look Up just because I have two quotes that I want to say about yes. it that are obviously things only I would notice. I am not saying that anyone. Oh, I was talking about Evangelion. Yes. Sorry. Let me explain why that matters. I'm sorry that I interrupted you. Go. It's okay. No, I'm sorry. 
the scenes with Agnes and the Borg Queen have this interesting, like, we need to work together, but we're at odds, but we're also vaguely related. And Picard and, Picard and the Borg have always mm. had that, right? Since Locutus. And the fact that Agnes has now been part, partly assimilated, so she would have some of Locutus mm. stuff, mm. right? Like, she would have access to Locutus stuff. And she has that line where she's like, I, I wish you were my dad. And this is another, it's like, they did not build up this relationship. <laughs> like, this is a relationship that came out of nowhere, but I'm okay with it. It's fine. That totally made sense to me. But one day we're going to talk <laughs> about how often I described Laris as a daughter figure to Picard and how maybe I should go back oh and delete all of that. <laughs> but Eve Angolian, I'm not going to distract you again. No, no, no. So there's these interesting things where there's sort of this weird, not a triangle, but kind of a triangle mm. between the mother and the father and the child, mm. right? With the board queen and Picard and Agnes. Yeah. And they're all adults, but you know, whatever. Which is very central to Evangelion. And again, I was like, I'm literally the only person <laughs> in the world who would make that connection. Literally no one else would ever, ever think that. The next episode is titled Fly Me to the Moon, uh, yes. which is the closing song of Evangelion. Every episode of Evangelion closes with someone singing Fly Me to the Moon. Just saying. Do you think it's going to be the Vic Fontaine version? No, me too. Talk about <laughs> fan service that no one needed. That no one ever wants. It feels like they're not necessarily responding to Evangelion, but they're dealing with similar tropes. Yeah, I would say that it's much more likely that it's the similar tropes. Mm. And again, not that there's no such thing as an original story, but tropes exist for a reason. And we're all interested in all of these tropes. Mm. And you can take something like just look at the Borg. Seven story, Agnes's story and Picard's story are not the same. And Hugh's story, no. like they're all Borg and they're all leaving or connecting to the collective and having that I want it and I don't want it at the same mm. time push me pull you type of situation but they all react in different ways yeah and they have different fates and so you can tell the same story with different people I think that is so true and I think it's a good place to wrap up what would you like to see next week what would I like to see next week? Well, I guess what we're going to see is Picard and Laris in Watcherville <laughs> watching Earth. And I'm expecting it to be very similar to that one episode of Voyager where they ask for help and they get prime director directive dude yes that's not a yes. word but you know what i mean they use the prime directive against them i assume laris will be less sleazy than the guy in that voyager episode and so laris is going to be like the federation telling mm. picard i can't help you but that's not what i want to see. <laughs> what i want to see is i'm kind of into rafi and seven somehow fast and furious seeing the bus <laughs> with literally one phaser <laughs> that'll be fun but i do kind of want rafi rios and seven to get back together yes. as a trio because honestly i think they're a really great trio if nothing else i think they need a third party to break up the tension between rafi and seven before they murder each other 
the only other thing I would want to see next week is Sochi. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to see Sochi. I miss her. I don't know what I expect next week, but what I hope will happen is that as the story unfolds, a lot of our complaints fall by the wayside. Like the back half of the season mm. has a lot of Laris and a lot of Soji mm-hmm. and a surprise Gaze McFadden appearance. And something that puts to rest most of our complaints. I don't think that the racism problem is going to be resolved because I think that is very... I think that's just a part of it. I I think you were completely correct in laying that at the feet of the writer's room. Yeah. The the non-diverse writer's room. I am hoping that the story will all come together. I don't expect Elnor to be remotely dead permanently. It bugs me that Rafi is the only person reacting as if he is because I feel like even if they hope that he will be restored, Picard and Seven and Rios and Agnes should be much more upset than they are. But maybe they're in denial? Maybe I'm in denial and I will be as angry and sad as Ruffy when the series ends and he's not brought back to life? I don't know. I don't know how he could not be brought back to life. Like, but I also just hate it. Like, I Okay, I'll just say... The reason Soji is not in this show is because they wouldn't need the Borg Queen if Soji could do the math. And the reason Elnor is not in this show is because they were afraid to write that. They didn't want to deal with Elnor's, what's it called? Absolute Absolute candor. candor. Maybe they don't have Soji because they know that the sexual tension between her and the Borg Queen would just be so overwhelming that it would wipe out the entire human race. Okay, my very last point I almost forgot is that when Book dies and it's a fake out in Discovery, even though like you suspected it was a fake out, lots of people were not taken in by that. We still got mm-hmm. that moment where not just Michael, but the entire bridge crew got to mourn and Hugh yes. was affected by it. And that in turn gave the audience a chance to be affected by it. And that is why I was completely taken in and believed the book was really dead. We didn't get any of that with Elnor. Rafi is the only person who's grieving. And that is the other reason I don't believe he's really dead. And I think they could have played it differently and not tipped their hand. I'm just going to wait and see. I am the Seven and Picard and Agnes turning off my feelings version Mm -hmm. because I cannot deal with Eleanor being dead. Oh, I'm very, very upset about Eleanor being dead and I don't care if he comes back. I'm still upset about it. And I just didn't need that. No, (laughs) I only believe in character death if it's Ruan Taka. So, you know, I want to say one comment about look up just because i like it and because so picard's mom says look Mm -hmm. up and there's a novel the pandora principle that i've mentioned before it's my favorite book yes (laughs) and it's a star trek novel but it's about savik and so savik has a vulcan mentor and her catchphrase is look up and see the stars and that's what she tells Savik and then she teaches it to her in Vulcan and so Savik says that to Spock in Vulcan and that's why he knows that something is going on and mm-hmm. it's just really great and so it's a theme throughout the story and it saves her life on more than one occasion by looking up and then in the movie Rogue One yes which is a Star Wars it is movie, not, not a Star, Star Trek movie however 
It is a Star Wars movie about the authoritarian, very gray, very brutalist and horrible empire that has taken over the galaxy. And Saw Gerrera, who is like a terrorist, he's a rebel, says to his mentee, Jin Erso, you can stand to see the Imperial flag reign across the galaxy. And she says, it's not a problem if you don't look up. <laughs> and so those two, again, only things I care about. However, those two phrases, I'm really excited to find out what that means mm. because there's the, the very hopeful version that so far is what it's been. However, at the same time, it's been like you said, the Kim Kardashian Borg queen mm. who said, look up. So it's important. It's not a problem if you don't look up. It is a problem if you do. And then you act and then you do something. To me, what it means so far is look up at the stars because that is a way of escaping your family and escaping your past and escaping what is tying you down. And we see that with Picard in that he has always escaped to the stars to resist temptation and emotional entanglement. But the last time we see his nephew Rene alive before he's ridiculously mm-hmm. killed off in Generations, he is lying <laughs> under a... That horrible movie. Yeah. So much damage. <laughs> but he is lying under a tree looking out at the stars and... Mm-hmm. planning his escape from his own repressive father. But Robert says to let him dream, which is, in, again, the reason the generation is so horrible <laughs> is that they were healing. The generational trauma was being undone. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.com, including links to our social media, credits for our theme music, and transcripts of our episodes. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr, all at AntimatterPod. You can write to us at mail at antimatterpod.com. That's M-A-I-L, not (laughs) M-A-L-E. If you like us, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you consume your podcasts. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us next week when we will be discussing the next episode of Star Trek Picard, which is titled fly me to the moon and hopefully i think discussing one episode instead of four it will be much easier to focus on what we liked rather than a cavalcade of pent-up opinions no, I'm just like... <laughs>